Psalm 113. The psalmist writes, Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated high? Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Again, we are just uh, would like to welcome you to Creekside. You know, if you're a newcomer, be sure to stop by the uh, entry desk on your way out and introduce yourself. Just have a few announcements this morning. One is there have been some uh, individuals who have expressed interest in helping out with the meals on Wednesday night. And uh, if you're not aware, every Wednesday at 5.30 we have a supper. Uh, we invite families and kids that are coming to Iwana as well as anyone else. Uh, in the church uh, to join us. And so if you are interested in helping out with that, there is a sign-up sheet. It's in the uh, entryway. Look for that sign-up sheet and uh, you can get your name on the list. Just a, a couple other things. This Friday, there will be a gathering for the youth group. Uh, that's junior high and high school. Uh, here at church at 6.30, we're going to have supper and s'mores and some games. And so I think the Lord willing, the, the weather looks like it should cooperate, but dress warmly because we'll be doing some outdoor games. So that's for the youth group this Friday night. One more item, and then I'm going to have a special visitor come up and share a quick update. But the Creekside Preschool is looking for some uh, donations for some winter clothes. You know, examples, 11 pairs of mittens, some sets of snow pants. Uh, I don't think they need 11, maybe just three, three to five some winter hats. Again, these, these don't have to be new, but if they're not new, hopefully they're lightly used. But uh, we're trying to, to get those uh, donations for the Creekside Preschool. Uh, so this would be a great week to, to go out and see if you can find uh, one of those items, or maybe you even have something at home that one of your kids has outgrown that's still in good shape. Um, bring that in. There's a little display right up front. But with that, I'm going to have uh, Norb come up and Jude, and they're going to share a little update about uh, God's work in Haiti. Yeah, use this mic right there. Yep. Okay, good. This is my great privilege and pleasure to introduce to you Jude Augustima. He's been introduced already in January this year by Ken Taylor, and he's a missionary to Haiti. And actually, two weeks ago, our Haiti team was in Jude's church in Haiti. And it just so happened that he came back with us and uh, we're snagging him here just to give you an, he's going to give us an update on his ministry and what our team did, you know, with his ministry in Haiti. So we're going to give him a few minutes of our attention. So thank you, Jude. God bless you. Thank you. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, good morning. I'm very happy to be here. And uh, that's remind me of home when I'm here. Um, once again, my name is Jude Augusma. I'm from uh, Haiti. 
Uh, you see a picture up there. This is a picture of my family. You can see my beautiful wife, Wozi, with me. And uh, my, our three sons uh, up in the picture. Uh, we have Micah. One of them is here with us. And also we have uh, Wozi and his mom also here with us. The entire family is here, even though the, the two other boys are not here. They are out in college in Hems. Um, in 1997... Uh, the Lord has put uh, a call in my heart to have to help provide education to uh, his precious kid uh, in the community uh, named Fortin. Um, some of you know the community. Uh, this is one of the most difficult call the Lord has put in my heart to do. But nothing the Lord put in your heart is going to be with you to the end of it. So. In, 2000, in 1997, we started, as you can see the first picture, we started with a, a five-room building through the help of a group of missionaries from here in Iowa, from Mary Drive, led by um, a good friend of mine named Larry Madol. And now we have this building, the second picture there, that's what we have right now. I only have five minutes, I need to go pretty fast through it. Uh, the school population went very fast. In 2002, uh, we have over uh, 190 students. And now is what we have, more than 350 students right now in the school. The Lord has blessed the ministry. And uh, moving far forward, the Lord not only provide the school, provide a church building where the school can come to church, the kids' school, and the parents and the people in the community can come to church as well. Not only that, the Lord provide this beautiful building. This used to be our home. Uh, we dedicate this place uh, for missionaries. Uh, it is welcoming for any missionaries who can go to Haiti. Uh, we can take 20 people, and we have extra room. We can go up to 26 if we want to. Uh, not only that, the Lord provide, and we have a, a community project, housing project. Uh, this is our first home. Uh, this, the, the one you see the picture below is our first home. We start with up to nine homes right now. Not only that, we have a radio project. Uh, we started this project with our dear friend, um, John. John Harker, he helped to provide uh, for this widow. And not only that, we have pastors training. Pastors training uh, every year. We have pastors from all over the United States. They go and then uh, they help pastors to do their ministry better. And also we have a good project. A good project is a project that uh, we provide a go to the family, to the kids, and, and they can raise it and have a little better income to the family. As you can tell, uh, a lot been done, and a lot is being done, and none of these can be done without the help of people like you. This is why last week we have uh, our friend John and Debbie from your church. They dedicate some of their time time and, and their skill, they paint eight classroom for us. This is our kindergarten room. This is so beautiful. Thank you so much, John and Debbie, for doing that. And also thank you, Quickside, for providing the money to, uh, to, 
to buy the paint and do this job. As many of you all also may remember, I expressed my concern for, uh, for the rising surge of a, uh, a premature pregnancy in our community. All of the school in Haiti uh, is suffering from that. Our girls are suffering from that. Uh, through the help of Karen, Karen Metzler, uh, we, started, we started a Montreal Health Education uh, program with the, kids, with the girls. And this program uh, aimed to instill a Christian driving health education for, for, the, for, for the girls. Thank you so much, Karen. And also, we want to thank you, our friend Nob. Our friend Nob is very special. Uh, this place, as you can see, the first picture, this is the porch of the mission center. This is a place everyone likes. We had a, a tour with the team from the church. As we're touring, we get to the porch first, and everybody stay there. Nobody wants to go anywhere else because there is a very nice view. So everybody wants to sit there. So with Nob's help, his money, and also his, uh, his carpentry skill, we're able to build uh, four benches there. So when you get there, you can sit uh, there. But are we there yet? We're not there yet. There's a lot to be done. A lot more to be done. This is why we need uh, you to partner with us to continue the Lord's work. And there's many ways you can do that. You can do that uh, through, we, have, we use a platform called Modern Day. You go to modernday.com and you can see us there. This is how you can contribute. And there's many ways. I know I don't have very much time. And also, if you need more information, you can contact us at uh, pcmp.mission. A, uh, a, at gmail.com. Thank you very much for your time, and I could not go without a thank, a, especially our friend Greg, Greg Bloomhagen. He's been in our side all the way until now. He always be in our side. Thank you so much, and may the Lord bless you. Thanks, brother. Thanks, brother. Uh, Jude, can you come on up here? Let me, uh, let me pray for Jude and the ministry. Uh, and we will try, uh, I'll ask you to get that information to Norb, and we'll get that stuff in our, uh, for the donations and contributions and stuff, we'll get that in our publications and stuff. Father, just thank you for our brother and his ministry and the ministry of others in Haiti and the chance that our team had to be a part of their ministry. We pray your continued blessing on that ministry. We pray that you continue to use them to impact the community for the gospel of Jesus, that they provide the, the resources and the much-needed things for the community as an avenue, as a platform for sharing the gospel of Jesus. We pray your blessing upon them in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank Amen. You, you bet, brother. You bet. Uh, exciting times. Uh, good, to, good to hear uh, from you, Jude, and from our team. We'll be hearing from them in a few weeks. They'll be sharing with us what God was doing not just in that time. Yeah, if you're uh, Sunday school kids, you guys are dismissed right now. If you want to make your way out, that'd be good. I just have a couple of things I want to challenge us with. Uh, some of you know that uh, before the, the Supreme Court will be hearing a case uh, that was brought up in Texas, I just want to challenge you all to be praying uh, for 
God's will to be done for the preservation of the, the lives of unborn children and ask you to be praying, if you would, for that as it comes upon us. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to worship you this morning, to hear from your word that you've given to us, and I pray that you would guide us as we open it up, that we might behold, as the psalmist says, wonderful truths from your law, that we would meditate on these truths, that these truths would challenge us, and that they would change us, and that you'd use us to be instruments of your work, salt and light, in this earth to spread the gospel. I pray that you would speak in me and through me, that you'd allow each of us to hear the things we need to hear and to be changed for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, my sister had her purse stolen as well as her identity uh, because the people who took her purse uh, pretended to be her. She spent the next several months trying to write checks, uh, get insurance, uh, basically live life uh, very difficultly. She couldn't do it because somebody else was her and they were, had her bad name. But eventually, unfortunately, uh, her good name was restored and her credit was restored as well. I say that because from the very first Jesus came upon the earth, from the very first moment that he came upon the earth, he struggled with an identity crisis, crisis of mistaken identity. People misunderstood who he was. They didn't really understand uh, who he was and what he said he would do. And I want to say to you this morning, I believe that the question, who is Jesus Christ, is the most important question you and I will ever answer. Who is Jesus Christ? There's no important, more important question that will be asked or that we must answer. You see, the crowds that followed Jesus, even his disciples, his family, and especially the, the religious leaders of the day who should have known more than anybody else who Jesus was, they, they were confused. They didn't really understand who this person Jesus was. They were struggling and understanding what he was. And the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, they should have known more than anybody uh, who Jesus was. But it was uh, apparent that they were the ones that uh, were most resistant to him. Isn't it interesting? It's true today. The people who should have been most receptive to Jesus were the most resistant to Jesus. They were the most rebellious against Jesus. In fact, the Pharisees claimed what? We saw this back in Matthew chapter 12. They said that he, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the, the ruler of the demons. And yet we saw, as we started in Matthew chapter 21, it's the crowds when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. So either he's a servant of Satan or he's the savior of the world. In the minds of the people, they were confused. Some of them were confused. Some of them had it right. Some of them were confused. They didn't understand who this Jesus was, who this person in the name of Jesus was. You see, he was heralded as a king by some and hated because he was heralded as a king by others. What Jesus incarnated, what he brought in the flesh, the, the person and the work that he brought in the flesh, wasn't what people anticipated. They anticipated something different. 
They expected him to be someone other than who he was. What they anticipated wasn't what he incarnated, and what he incarnated wasn't what they anticipated. They thought he'd come in riding on a, a horse, a white horse, to rescue them, deliver them from the Romans. But he came in riding on the foal of a donkey in tattered clothes. Wasn't, wasn't mixing. It wasn't what they thought would happen. And so it is this idea about who Jesus is. Is he just this human guy? Or is he actually the son of God? That was the question they were grappling with because he claimed to be the son of God. And people claimed him to be the son, said he was the son of God, but they didn't understand it. And so I would say to you that his, the, the fact of Jesus' humanity and his full divinity are truths upon which the very essence of our Christian faith rests. Questions that need to be settled. And as we come to the text in Matthew chapter 22, the end of Matthew chapter 22, Jesus settles the issue. But when he settles the issue, he does more than just to confront their, their ideas. He does more than just to correct them. His clarification proves beyond a shadow of doubt who he really is. And in doing so, he calls them. Calls all people, even his enemies, to accept him as fully God and fully man, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the long-promised Messiah. Now, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 21, 22, and we're going to look at verses 41 through 46. And in this text, Jesus is confronting the religious leaders, okay? He's interrogating them. If you remember... All through Matthew 22, there's been this series of confrontations, this series of interrogations. They have been asking Jesus questions. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Oh, hey, by the way, there was this guy, and he had seven, uh, uh, this woman, and, and she had all seven brothers. And so in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And by the way, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Test after test after test. And Jesus has masterfully answered them. And so now in this interrogation of the Pharisees in Matthew 21, they, uh, he challenges their deficient view of the Messiah based upon tradition. And he confirms an accurate view of the Messiah, who the Messiah is, based on the truth of God's word, revealing he is the fulfillment of this truth so that we will delight in who he is and we will declare who he is to a lost and dying world. Matthew chapter 22. I'm going to read the text, just a few short verses, but here we go. In verse 41, he says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. As you read through the scriptures, again, this is in the context. Same day in which they have asked him 
question after question after question, three times in a row. They're trying to pin him down. They're trying to prove that he's deficient. They're trying to prove that he's some sort of a dunce, that he's some sort of an imposter. And he puts up with all of that. And so we see first thing that he does here, the first tactic that he uses, is he entices them to articulate what amounts to a deficient view of who the Messiah is based upon their, their tradition. And he's irrefutably answered their questions to prove their, and proven their inadequacy, their hypocrisy, and now he goes on the offensive. And Jesus, as he goes on the offensive, uh, he, he, he says, these people are still entrenched. Even though he's answered all their questions, they're still entrenched in their unbelief. I may have told you this story before, but uh, there was a, there's a place in, in uh, I was traveling, going to go to Montana to this place, and the guy on the phone told me, he says, look, I'm going to tell you the directions, write these directions down, because if you try to use some sort of Garmin or GPS on your phone or whatever, you're going to get lost. There was a guy uh, not too long ago, he told me, he said, he said he was just relying upon his GPS to get to the address that I'm, that I'm giving you, and he ended up spending his night in the car lost on some gravel road in the middle of nowhere in Montana. Stubborn unbelief. He wouldn't listen to what was being told. These religious leaders wouldn't listen to the demonstrations and the declarations of who Jesus was. And so there they were. And Jesus goes on the offensive to challenge their hostile rejection of who he is and of his true identity. And so there's two steps he, he goes through to articulate, to communicate uh, uh, who, who he is, their, their deficient view. First of all, he's a request for information, and that's the question Yes, Who do you say uh, the, the Pharisees are gathered together? You can just kind of picture it, if you will, in the temple. The day before, Jesus says, run the money changers out. And so he shows up again, and they're like aghast. And so they attack him with question after question after question. And he answers, and he answers, and he answers, and he's dumbfounded them. And so here they are, dumbfounded in their inability to prove him deficient. Inability to prove him delinquent. Inability to prove him as some sort of derelict person that they should reject. And they're kind of huddled over in the corner trying to counsel together how they're going to what they're going to do next. And Jesus just throws it out there. He says, oh yeah, hey, you guys, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Just tell us what his lineage is. Where is he coming from? You know, there's some stuff in the Old Testament. You guys are experts in the law. Maybe you got a clue that this is the one who's the, the king who's living and has an eternal reign. I think it's like Jesus is saying, do you reject the Messiah, the idea that I might be the Messiah, based upon your own expectation, or is it factual? Is there some basis to your rejection of who I am? He didn't say that. I'm not saying he said that. I'm wondering if he didn't wonder that in his mind. So then we see their response in verse 42. Uh, it says, Jesus asked him, verse 41 and verse 42, what do you think about Jesus, uh, but the Christ whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Well, the question was like, the simplest question that any Jewish person, probably from the age of five on up, could have answered. 
whose son is the Messiah. I mean, everybody knew this. The Old Testament is riddled with declarations of who the Messiah is. I want you to, if you, if you can look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, verses 12 through, through 16. Uh, you can see it up on the screen. When your days are finished and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants. Now this is the uh, prophet talking to David will come after you from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. David's throne. So it's a descendant of David. You have it declared here. You can see, in, in, and many of you remember this, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. And upon his throne, his kingdom, there will be no in, uh, end to the increase of his government or of his peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on, you have this eternal kingdom established by a descendant of David. He's going to be a king, descendant of David. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. The root of Jesse, the root meaning the descendant of Jesse, will, will come up and you'll see him and he will be this king. You could go, we could go to Psalm 8, we could go to Psalm 18, we could go to Psalm 89, and all throughout Psalm 89 we have declarations of the, the Messiah as the king, as a descendant of David. I'm going to end us in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 23, uh, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and then I, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a descendant. A righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will be, live securely. And this is his name by which he will be called. The Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. He is a righteous king who will act wisely. See, the focus on the Messiah as the son of David naturally led to this idea. He's going to be a king, right? So what do kings do? Kings rule and they reign and they conquer and they vanquish foes. And so he's going to ride in and he's going to vanquish their foes. So it naturally led to that idea. But Jesus riding in on a donkey, claiming to be the Messiah, they just didn't put the two together. They said this doesn't make any sense because if he was a king, if you remember that message, I think it was Kyle, he said that he would come in on a horse, not on a donkey. Or the foal of a donkey. Riding in on a donkey meant peace. Riding in on a king meant conquering. So they had what was a, not, not, it, was, it was a partially accurate, but deficient view of who the Messiah would be. So they were close, but they didn't have it all together. They were, it was shaped by their personal experience and their expectation, not necessarily always by the Scripture. And you know what? That happens today. Think about today. We have scripturally based, partially accurate, but deficient perspectives of the Messiah. Some proclaim the Messiah or Jesus as a Santa Claus Savior. Okay, That He will just give us whatever we want. That if we just ask God, and there are passages in Scripture, you know, you can go to John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14 and other places, whatever you ask in my name, I'll give it to you. And then they take that and they run with it and they say, whatever I ask of God, he's going to give to me. He wants me to be wealthy. And preachers and authors write books like 
Paul Zane Pilsers. God wants you to be rich. Well, God can make you rich. And in fact, if you are rich, it's because God made you rich. Because riches and honor come from you. 2 Chronicles 29. And it's in your power to make great and to strengthen every man. It always comes from God. If it comes, it comes from God. But that doesn't mean that he always will. What about Paul? What did he say in Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 through 13? I have learned in whatever state I am to be content, whether I have much or I have little, which means that God's in charge of both. So there's no blanket promise that every time we want and the Santa Claus Jesus also is one who wants everybody to be absolutely completely healthy no problems no physical ailments no difficulties you just have to trust God in their way of saying it I'm not saying that now did did Jesus heal the sick did he raise the dead did he cast out demons absolutely can he and does he yet heal the sick, cast out demons, and provide and care for? Sure does. That happens. But is there a guarantee that it's going to happen every time? No, because he did this stuff not because that's what he came to do. In fact, if you read Mark chapter 1, Jesus left those who needed his healing, supposedly, so that he would go proclaim the gospel. He says in Luke chapter 4 that he came to proclaim liberty to the captive. To preach the good news. All of those things that he did were a picture, a taste of heaven. A taste of what he was going to accomplish through our redemption. They aren't the deal. The deal is what you need to be delivered from. Our ultimate redemption is through what Christ did on the cross for us. So there's pebbles of truth in avalanche when you say Santa Claus Jesus. Well, there's some pebbles of truth, but they miss the avalanche of falsehood. Then there's this liberator, Lord, where Jesus is uh, portrayed and his primary purpose is to liberate us from the oppression of certain systems or certain individuals. That's not the purpose of Jesus. Then there's this uh, recovery redeemer, uh, and, and this idea of Jesus as a recovery Jesus uh, errs in the sight, again, pebbles of truth. Errs in the idea that J says, see, Jesus is not merely useful in helping me recover from an addiction or a compulsion or whatever. He is absolutely essential in delivering me and delivering us from what it is that plagues our soul, which is sin. That leads to the addiction and compulsion and that sort of stuff. So Jesus is essential in helping us conquer our fallen condition. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, and the power to overcome sin in our life comes through our relationship with Jesus. So he's not just some useful person. So is it? There's a warning, I think, through what Jesus is saying. Don't just pin our ideas of who Jesus is on some one verse and say, run with it and say, that's what Jesus is. No, Jesus is much more than that. Jesus is our Savior. Acknowledging that Messiah is the Son of David must have been difficult for the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And why do I say that? 
it must have caused them to be nervous. Because all throughout Matthew's gospel, Matthew's gospel what is it it's declared of Jesus? He's the son of David. From Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, in the, the genealogy of Jesus, in Matthew chapter 1, he is the son of David. If you, you understand that the Satan himself in Matthew chapter 4 says he's the, the son of David. The blind people in Matthew chapter 9, oh, son of David, have mercy on us. <laughs> Same with the blind people in Matthew chapter 20. Son of David, have mercy on us. So Jesus is repeatedly declared to be the son of David. As Jesus entered into Jerusalem, Hosanna to the son of David. Clearly a, a, a declaration that they believed he was the Messiah. He was the fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7. He was the guy coming to rescue them. And so now for the Pharisees to actually, and the religious leaders actually to articulate, oh, he's the son of David. Whoops. It's kind of like, I, you almost hear him, like, oh yeah, we just said that. And now we, we've, we're caught. They denied, they, they, they couldn't possibly deny the possibility of Jesus being the Messiah because he actually was the son of David. And the Messiah would be the son of David. They wouldn't believe it though. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 15, uh, we, we know that they were angry and they sought to destroy him. Okay? So they had a view of Jesus that was deficient. So Jesus is much more than that. What, how does he prove that he's much more than that? He goes on to employ a second tactic. And the Lord, in this one, in verses 43 through 46, he encourages us the acceptance of an accurate view of the Messiah based on the truth. And there's two ways that he reveals this accurate view of the Messiah's identity. There's a request that's based on the truth. So Jesus says, since the Messiah is the son of David, he asked the Pharisees to explain. Then how is it that if he's the son of David, that he calls him Lord? How can your son be your Lord? Is what he's asking. How does that work? Then how does David, in the Spirit, Notice the text says, in the Spirit. Why does he say that? Because if he's speaking in the Spirit, he's talking about divine inspiration. He's talking about that what David said about himself and what he said about his Lord is ver verifiable, certain, true, absolutely. Now some people, you know, the <clears throat> lots of stuff going around it's not intended to be a political comment necessarily but uh, some people are questioning the veracity of the statements of the director of uh, uh, the NIH uh, Dr. Fauci because you know on one hand he's said that you know the U.S. was not funding gain-of-function research in the Wuhan lab and now the NIH actually is saying yes we were doing gain-of-function research in the Wuhan so what what do you trust see Jesus says David spoke in the Spirit, and it's settled. So there's three insights from the, what David said in the Spirit that help us understand who this Messiah is. First of all, there's this designation. If you look at verse 43, it says, He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? And verse 44, The Lord said to my Lord. The Lord in verse 43 and the second Lord in verse 44 are the... Words that translate the most common name for God. Adonai. 
In the Greek, it's kurios, Lord. Meaning divine. This is not some human person. This is a divine being. He spoke prophetically, David did, about his son in Psalm 110, verse 1. And Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm written by David. And all the Jews understood that David had written the psalm. They believed it. And so he's writing about his own son, prophetically speaking about his own son, the messianic king, as his Lord. David is saying, my son, my descendant, is my Lord. He's my king. He's my God. Same thing in verse 44. So if Messiah is David's human descendant, then how can he be David's God? How can your biological descendant be your God? That was the question that he was asking. That's the question. Verse 10. Now, in Psalm 110, uh, that's what he's asking. So then there's a location. Notice what he says about this Lord. He said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So the Lord, the first Lord in verse 44 is Yahweh, God Almighty. So God Almighty said to David's son, David's Lord, oh yeah, sit right next to me. And everybody knew what that meant. Because if you sit on the throne to the right hand of your, the king, that means you are equal in authority and power and honor. In every way, you are equal to the king. So this Messiah is the king. He is equal with God the Father. He is God. David's son, Messiah, is equal with the Father. And then this domination, what's he going to do? He's going to sit there until his enemies are beneath his feet. He's invincible, and he is perpetual. He is a divine king. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? So from Psalm 110, David has proven that the Messiah is God. He's biologically David's son, and he is somehow, in some way, he is his God. Interesting that just in the same way that Jesus has gotten the authorities to acknowledge that the Messiah is the son of David, of whom Jesus is and been declared to be the son of David. Now he says the Messiah is the Savior, is, is God Almighty, and in the same way they should come to this understanding and realization that Jesus, who has declared to be the son of God, is also God in the flesh. You see, the Father called him that. This is my beloved son, he says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan declared him to be the son of God. And the disciples called him the son of God in Matthew chapter 14, in verse 33. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, we have Peter calling him the son of God. And then in, we're going to look at it later, but in Matthew 26, Jesus himself said, people said, are you, are you, tell us right now, the, the high priest, are you the son of God or not? He goes, it's as you say. He is David's son. He is David's God. And in both his designation and his demonstration, Jesus was both the human son of David, the divine son of God, and David's Lord, and David's king. The only appropriate answer to the question is, how can he be David's son? Because How can he be his Lord? Because he is 
both human and divine. He is David's son as a human. He is David's Lord because he is God. And guess what? Jesus is saying, I'm the guy. I'm the guy. It's me. I am the Messiah. And you're missing it. This is it. I am that son. For the Pharisees and the crowd and everyone there and everyone since to see this and read it, it is to say, okay, now what are you going to do with that? Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm the guy. You know, I don't know, some of you follow the NFL, some of you don't, it doesn't matter, but if, if, if you knew who Tom Brady was, he could say, I am the greatest NFL quarterback of all time. And there would be a response, you know. People would say, well, the Atlanta Braves are the greatest baseball team of all time, or the Boston uh, Red Sox, or the New York Yankees. The great. You'd have, there'd be a response. When Jesus says, I am the Messiah, Son of God, Son of David, is a response that's called for. How are we going to respond? How do we respond? We respond to the truth. How did they respond? Look at verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word. And in fact, from that time on, nobody even asked him any more questions. Why? Because they made look, look like fools if they asked questions. Now, I would submit that their silence stemmed either from ignorance... Didn't really understand it. But I think even more it stemmed from insolence or pride. They were proud. And they weren't willing to admit that Jesus was the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And from here on, on out in Matthew, Jesus makes a point, And we're going to start it next week in Matthew 23. Of asserting his divine authority. And declaring his divine authority as he marches to the cross. It was their ignorance and their insolence. So how do we respond? They were, they were confounded by what Jesus says. But they weren't convicted. And they weren't convinced. And they weren't converted. They didn't repent of their sin and turn in faith and trust in this Jesus who is the Messiah who was sent to save them from their sins. No. They said, no. They became entrenched and became angry. And so there are some responses. We can reject Jesus. And that's what they did. They rejected him. And in their denial, they sought to destroy him. Or we can confess Jesus as Lord. It was Paul who said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We can wave the white flag of surrender. Say, okay, I'm tired of running my own ship, uh, my, uh, captaining my own ship, running my own life. I'm going to turn from my sin. I'm going to trust and accept that Jesus' death on the cross is the payment for the sin that I've committed and that I will trust him to be my Savior. And I'll let him be my Lord. Because, see, he's not just a Savior from sin, but he's a Lord of our life. He says, I want control of all of it. You surrender everything. Confess him as Lord and turn and trust. It's masterful. In Psalm 110, you know who the Messiah is portrayed as? He's portrayed as the king in verses 1 and 2. The one who sits on the throne with the enemies under his feet. But he's also portrayed as the priest, the priest of Melchizedek. 
He's also portrayed as a judge in Psalm 110. And Jesus Christ is king. He is priest. He is judge. Confess him as Lord. He is a friend of sinners. Oh, don't get me wrong. He's the sovereign king of the universe. The sovereign God over all. He created us and formed us. If you listened to Bob last week, if you looked up Colossians chapter 1, and it talks in John chapter 1, in him, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Colossians chapter 1, he created all things, and all things were created by him and for him, and in him all things exist. This is Jesus. He's God. Not just a nice guy, not just a, you know, a, a, a warm fuzzy, he's not just a good teacher, he's not just a, a nice spiritual example, he's not just some uh, prophet who existed. No, he's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. Do we consider him as Lord? You see, it's confessing as Lord, that's one thing. But do we actually consider him to be our Lord? That's another thing. I can talk the talk and not walk the walk and you can think that I am confessing Jesus as Lord when I'm really just professing Jesus as Lord. And the same can be true in the church without a genuine connection to or an affection to Christ. A genuine faith produces fruit. We saw this back in Matthew chapter 7. Many will call him Lord, Lord. You'll say, you know, didn't we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do miracles in your name? You say, I never knew you. The tree is known by its fruit. Now, you know, we, as believers, we fail. And so the fruit isn't always as, as ripe and tasty, you know. I mean, you go to the store, you buy the peaches, and you like, you smell them, you buy the watermelons, you thump them, you know, you try to get the, the good fruit. And sometimes, you know, it's a, there's a lot of good fruit in that batch, but then there's a few bad ones. Well, as human beings, we fail. The fruit isn't always consistently good, but there will be fruit we must practice the truth, walking worthy of the Lord, and then proclaim the truth. And we proclaim the truth by declaring the truth. And the neat ministry that Jude has in, in Haiti is providing platforms to proclaim the truth, right? That you get these kids into school and they want an education. And when they come and they get an education, then they also get to hear about not just reading, writing, and arithmetic, but they get to hear about Jesus. And they get a health care. People care about their health. They want to be healthy and, and understand and have good health. But what they need more than just their physical health is their spiritual health. And so we proclaim and we declare the truth, but we also defend the truth. Jesus defended it. What was he doing here? Defending the reality of who he is. And folks, we need to defend the truth of who Jesus is. As I said and started to say, you know, he, he's not just a, a wise man. He's not just a moral man. He's not just a good spiritual example. You see, we have many well-meaning and well-intentioned people who are deceiving people. When the, when the Jehovah's Witnesses come and the Mormons come, they're well-meaning and well-intentioned, but their idea of Jesus is absolutely deficient. have no savior he's just a nice guy or maybe he's a spirit brother to lucifer you know in one of their one of those teachings you know or you know we're all becoming gods in the mormon faith no 
There is one God, and it's not us. And there is one Lord, Jesus. And every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we can, we can reject Him, we can confess Him, and if we confess Him, then we better consider Him to be Lord in our life, in our daily experience. And then we should love Him. Last week, Bob was preaching on what's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus has just established that the Messiah is God, and he's saying that he is the Messiah. If the Messiah is God and Jesus is the Messiah, then Jesus is God, and if Jesus is God, then we should love Jesus with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. How do we love Jesus? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is John chapter 14. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me, and he that loves me will love to my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. John 14, 21. By obedience. Our obedience to the Word of God is not just duty, it's devotion. It's a demonstration of our love for Christ, that we love Him. And then through our reverence, through our obedience and through our reverence. I'm kind of modifying something that I, I read in, in my preparation, but, but love doesn't hold back anything. Love doesn't hold back our, our praise. Love doesn't hold back our songs. You know, sometimes I get, I, I don't sing very well. You know, I'm a musically challenged person, okay? So my, my voice is not very well, good. My wife actually will tell me, and she's here, so she'll confirm it. I love her, but she'll say, Steve, don't, don't sing so loud because you throw me off key. But if we love Jesus, we should be lifting our voices, not of this moaning and droning and mucking around. Just let it go. He is the king. And you're like, well, we're in church. Hello? That's where we're supposed to praise God in church, you know? So we don't hold back anything, we don't hold back our service. We don't hold back the, the possessions that we have. Remember when David was building the temple? He was just giving stuff, giving stuff, and giving stuff to, to build the temple. We don't hold back anything. It's what my friend Darwin Anderson calls expensive worship. We give it all to Jesus because he's worthy of it. Because we are so grateful for his death, his birth, his death, his resurrection, and his rule. He's reigning as the king. And he deserves it all. He deserves it all. All to him. I surrender. I surrender all. All to him. I freely give. I surrender all. See, this, our team going to Haiti is expensive worship. Coming every Wednesday night and listening to children and fixing a meal and cleaning up afterwards. It's expensive worship. It costs us something. Jesus. What has He given for us? Everything. 
gave his life so that we could live. And so we love Jesus. And then we rejoice in and reflect on Jesus as Lord in our heart. Just reading in 1 Timothy this week. And Paul says that, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am chief. I am the foremost of all, he says. We see that we can rejoice because Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And what better way to rejoice in and to reflect on Jesus' love for us than to break bread, actually take the wafer and drink the juice that remind us of his sacrifice so that we can be part of his kingdom. And if you don't know Jesus, you're invited to receive him as Savior and then take these elements to celebrate and rejoice and remind us of all the great sacrifice that he's done for us that we would live and celebrate and honor this King. Let's pray. Father, thank you for helping us to see Jesus as our King and as our Lord. And as he gave his life he demonstrated his love beyond any other way that could have possibly, anyone could possibly imagine. He showed us his love for us. And so I pray that we would sing and rejoice with this, the, the writer who says, oh, grace, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let your goodness, like a fetter, bind our wondering hearts to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.